0: let's pray together Father we thank you that you do we thank you that you have from the bottom of our hearts tonight we thank you for our salvation we thank you for what you saved us out of and then as if that could not be topped the wonder of the life that you have saved us into what a God you are and how grateful we are for you And we're grateful for your love tonight. If anybody doubts that this evening, we pray that you would just minister that away, any doubt at all, from their hearts and their minds and their spirit this evening. As we turn to your word now, we pray that you would open it up to us. We pray that you would be very, very active in our hearts, giving us revelation and understanding and the application of it into our relationship with you and into the life that you've called us to live as a very, very distinct um, people in this world, but distinct in a, a very distinct way. And so teach us about that tonight, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. John's Gospel, chapter 13. Tonight, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and that uh, had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This section of John's Gospel, chapters uh, 13 through 17, is uh, one of the most beautiful, treasured passages in in all of the Bible. Uh, so much that is contained within it and anybody that becomes familiar with the Bible at all finds themselves uh, thinking warmly and wonderfully of this passage of Scripture and uh, because of uh, the work that it has done in our lives, the effect that it has had upon our lives, what it is that uh, Jesus teaches here. What we find in this instruction of Jesus in these chapters is completely unique to uh, the gospel according to John. He is uh, It's a record of Jesus' final night with the disciples before the cross, and he is alone in an upper room in the city of uh, Jerusalem. And as we see, he realizes that his public ministry has uh, come, uh, is drawing to a close, and now there are going to be uh, no more crowds coming around him to teach, no more crowds to, uh, for him to, uh, miracles related to them and uh, perform them, if perform is the word for that. Uh, now he just shuts himself off to these 12 men that he's poured his life into for three and a half years. And so he begins his kind of uh, long farewell to his disciples. And there's a bunch of things that he wants to share, priceless things that he wants to share with his disciples before uh, the morning comes. That is going to mean his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and then on to the trials before uh, the religious leaders, then before Pilate, the crucifixion, and things are going to move fast. So this is a very quiet time, an important time for him to… in an uninterrupted way for him and for them to share these uh, truths. In verse 1, we're given the mental and the emotional condition of Jesus that night. Mentally, he knew that now that his hour had come… So his mind is dominated by the uh, great event of, uh, the, uh, that is going to happen not only in his crucifixion the following day, but also, as I mentioned, in the trials and the terrible physical punishment that would be meted out upon him before uh, he ever died upon the cross. In terms of his heart and his heart condition, it's completely dominated by a desire to love the disciples, and to care for them uh, all the way uh, to the end. And all that we read in this section is motivated by his love for them. They are pure and utter knuckleheads, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, but that never drives God away from continuing his work in our lives. We've uh, sung about his faithfulness tonight, and his patience with us is wonderful. And so Uh, Typically, as a person, uh, any person in this world when we're facing death, uh, one of the things, two things I think that we really want at that time is to have our loved ones around us and then to be able to say to them uh, what we know that we won't be able to say to them ever again and uh, certainly not in this world. And that's the environment that Jesus has produced here uh, to be with the disciples, it's his farewell address. I don't think that we'll understand really anything in, in any great depth, and certainly not to the depth I think that the Lord wants us to about Jesus's washing of the disciples' feet as we're getting to here in in just a moment, without understanding that up in that upper room, there is a dynamic that is operating there uh, that is something other than what Jesus had happening in his heart and in his mind. There's a very, very unhealthy uh, tension uh, between the disciples, between the apostles, and attention that I'm convinced threatened to utterly spoil this final evening of Jesus with his disciples. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 24, it informs us that immediately prior to this event the disciples had uh, taken up once again their argument among one another over which one of them was the greatest. Luke tells us that they disputed over this, I don't know the last time you had a conversation with somebody over who was the greatest. I hope it was in seventh grade, uh, or in fifth grade. I mean, we may carry on that debate, uh, but we keep it to ourselves. Uh, these guys have carried it out right on the road, and and, the dis- and and being told that they disputed related to this. This wasn't a calm conversation where each one laid out uh, you know, their assets and their liabilities for being kind of crowned the greatest of, of the disciples and then dispassionately coming to a conclusion. They were arguing out loud uh, with one another over who would be considered uh, uh, the greatest. And as a result, as they come into this upper room, uh, they are as out of touch with Jesus' heart and with Jesus' mind as they could ever uh, be. And Jesus knew that uh, uh, this needed to be addressed first and and foremost if this final evening and all of the teaching that's going to follow here after chapter 13 isn't going to be uh, a complete waste and loss because of their carnality. And so Jesus proceeded to address all of this in two ways. First, by giving them an example in himself of what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of God, uh, and then by verbally applying his actions to their uh, lives. And the fact that Jesus would lay aside all of what was on his mind, Uh, concerning the coming day, the things that filled his mind, and then lay aside all that he desired to say to them, but said, I won't do it until this is taken care of, until this issue is addressed. It speaks of how important this issue uh, of servanthood among his disciples is. The context is very powerful in reinforcing that. So you picture Jesus in this upper room in the city of Jerusalem, Uh, They're leaning on their left elbows. Uh, The table that they were sitting at was known as a triclinium. And uh, it was a table that you would come up, much as if you had kind of a TV and you were watching uh, the 49ers or something um, deeply spiritual like that. And you're on the carpet and you got your left arm out like this and you're sprawled out. Well, the food would be, uh, the table would be here and the food would be here as well. It's nothing uh, you have to disregard the Last Supper and uh, paintings uh, like that. They're very, very uh, European, very, very Western. That's not how uh, they ate it all, I remember. And it's, it's wonderful whenever I go to a museum, and I love museums, and you go into a museum and you see these uh, great artists and and uh, masters, and, and then they'll paint biblical scenes and Rembrandt, I don't know where he was spiritually. It's really hard to get a good uh, biography on uh, Rembrandt, but uh, how he is able to capture biblical scenes, I, I don't know that anybody uh, tops him at all. But I remember one time seeing uh, David uh, head out to uh, meet Goliath in the field, and there was this painting here, and he's got a hat like Robin Hood with a plume, and he's got tights on and, and Obviously, people didn't get to Israel and uh, study these things as, as we're able to do uh, today. And as they're lying around that table, every one of them had dirty feet. And in those days, when you would come into another person's home, uh, your feet would uh, immediately be washed. And so you're walking in sandals, uh, it's hot, it's warm, there's dirt. And part of the greeting and the hospitality would be to wash somebody's feet and it would usually be done by either the lowest of the servants or the lowest of the slaves or it would be done by the lowest member of the family it's interesting to me that when Jesus made arrangements for the use of the upper room he requested a towel and he requested a basin of water uh, because they're present in the room what he did not arrange for was a servant to wash the feet, uh, anybody's feet, in that room uh, on that evening. And I think the reason he didn't is because he was supposed to already have 12 servants, uh, any one of which would have uh, uh, fumbled over one another, uh, ran over one another to be able to take the privilege of of washing the feet of the disciples and and Jesus' feet. And so the towel is sitting there, uh, the basin of water is waiting there, and none of the twelve is going to wash the feet of the other disciples because it would have been an admission in that culture that they were not the greatest among the disciples but that they were the lowest among the disciples. And so it's very obvious that their argument along the road has now carried into the dynamic uh, of this uh, room. And so they'd rather recline with dirty feet, unwashed feet, than wash the other disciples' feet and so how does Jesus deal with this? We're told that after supper being ended, the devil, verse 2, having already put it into the heart of Judas, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he then uh, rose up from supper. He gave them plenty of time uh, to 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 do themselves what he is now uh, going to do as an example to them, born out of their failure. And so he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, his outer garment, outer robe. He took a towel and he girded himself and he brought his robe up under, inner robe up under the belt in order to uh, have the flexibility now to get on his uh, hands and knees and to wash the feet of the disciples. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and then to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. And so he washed their feet, then he dried their feet. And as each of the twelve washed all of this, it seems likely that uh, this produced a great uh, conviction in their heart uh, that, that something is very, very backwards here uh, in this this scene, and a, uh, the conviction of, of this scene being wrong. Here you have Jesus, who they knew to be the promised Messiah, who they knew to be the Son of God. How lost can you be? In your argument, or your being convinced that you are the greatest, or at least hoping you're the greatest, among the twelve... To, to allow the one who they, I acknowledge to be the Son of God, to be forced to, of the 13 in that room, to humble himself, get up in that environment, and wash these feet. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an astonishing uh, uh, scene. And here Jesus is doing what they should have done for one another, but they weren't willing to do it. And I think it's, there's that sinking feeling you get when someone far greater than you in reputation and in accomplishment readily does what you and I uh, felt we were too good or too important to do. Maybe you've had that experience in your life. You think, I'm not going to uh, do that. And then somebody uh, far more important comes into the room, makes a beeline there, and does it. And you feel about half an inch uh, uh, tall related uh, to it. And so they were all very comfortable uh, with, with uh, uncomfortable with what was going on here. And I think to a man they were saying, this isn't right. Why in the world is, is he doing this? And that isn't the real question. The real question they should have been asking is, why weren't any of us willing to do that? How in the world could we have thought that that was below us when Jesus did not consider it to be below him. And if we consider ourselves to be above anything that God calls us to do, whatever that might be, however low that position might be, then we esteem ourselves more highly before the Father than Jesus did. We know that the scene is disturbing to the disciples Because when Jesus came to wash Peter's feet, he protests mightily here. And I'm inclined to to think that those feelings in his words here represented uh, the rest of the twelve. And then he came to Simon Peter as he's washing feet. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet and Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. In other words, just hold on a couple minutes, because when I'm done, I'm going to explain what I, I'm doing here. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet! Exclamation point. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, and he could be very much on a swivel uh, emotionally, he said, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and uh, my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who uh, would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. And so when he had washed their feet... uh, then retaken his garments and put them on. He sat down uh, again. And so uh, here is the protest by uh, Peter, and uh, 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 who protested any kind of washing, even of his feet. Jesus says, "You can't have anything to do with me without that washing of your feet." And then he says, uh, "You know, give me all of the cleansing that, that you've got." Later they would understand more fully the significance of what Jesus was doing here uh, after the crucifixion uh, of Jesus, which provided, of course, cleansing for all men. Uh, Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 3, and he said, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Spirit, whom he poured out upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of everlasting life. When we were born again as Christians, we got the spiritual bath. That's what happened when we were born again. All of our lifetime of sin was washed away. But even after we've become Christians... Uh, that we still sin. We still need to be cleaned up, uh, not to the degree that we needed to be forgiven and cleaned up and, uh, at the moment of our salvation, but there's still the sin that needs to be washed regularly uh, from our lives. As John put it, in his first epistle, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so it's like a man who comes out of a bath, and, uh, and then he walks on the dirt in the ancient world, and uh, he doesn't need another bath, but he does need his feet Uh, to be washed. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture uh, of the Christian life. We don't need to be born again, again, every time we sin. Uh, We just need to be forgiven of of that that sin. And then in verse 12, Jesus, after he had finished, he posed a question to the disciples. He said, Do you know what I have done uh, to you? So obviously, This is something Jesus has done in order to teach them something, and they have no idea what it is that he is trying to teach them because their response is what? Silence. They have no idea, and only Jesus is going to be able to break that that silence. They are oblivious in terms of understanding what Jesus is wanting to communicate. And so Jesus, the way that he does with all of us, he's so uh, gracious, firm, but very gracious and wonderful. He said, you call me teacher, rabbi, that's what you call me. You call me Lord, you ascribe deity uh, uh, to me, you call me your master, and you say, well, for so I am. And if I then, uh, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you uh, if you do them. And so Jesus gives the answer to them in, in these verses. And essentially, Jesus was communicating to them that the highest position in the kingdom of God is the position of a servant, and what the one that had just washed their feet was one they called their teacher and their Lord. How convicting must that have been uh, to hear Jesus speak to them in, in that place? They were right in calling him Master in law and Lord. a teacher is someone that we listen to. Uh, Rabbi, our master, is someone that we obey. And what Jesus wanted uh, 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 them uh, to learn was to follow him in this example uh, of servanthood. Again, if he was willing to wash their feet, then they ought to have been willing to wash one another's feet, which they weren't willing to do. So again, the disciples had brought an attitude that is common to all of us, brought an attitude that is very dangerous in the the context of the kingdom of God. They had brought that into the upper room. And what a surgical uh, removal of that this, this event was. We're told here, as Jesus says, that He had done it as an example Uh, for them there in verse 15. So, um, you have churches, Christian churches all around the world that on a weekly basis they have uh, foot washing um, services and they will do it in kind of honor or respect or as an ordinance related to this passage. I don't think it's an ordinance because Jesus simply took something that was very, very common from the culture in order to illustrate this point to them. He wasn't setting up a new ordinance with water baptism and communion uh, for the church. I'm, I'm glad for foot-washing services. You go to all of them that you want. and um, But i 'm not interested. We have a guy on staff here. it 's one of the nicest guys. It's just so friendly, so everything just but just try and give him a hug, and he will virtually run in the other direction and I 'm not talking about Tom though he's very close to that <laughs> and um, but uh that's the same kind of reaction I have to somebody sitting, sitting down somewhere and letting someone uh, wash my feet. But that's my problem. I, that, that's not your problem, and, and I don't want to, to put it on you. But we don't see foot washing been practiced by the early church in the book of Acts. We see no instruction on it in, in the epistles, which would be a criteria for making it an ordinance uh, in the church. And, and so it is simply what Jesus uh, uh, said it was intended to be, and, and that is as a, a, an example. And so, uh, and, uh, and he declares in verse 17 that such a life is a blessed life. And so the blessing comes with knowing uh, this and then doing these things. And so the question becomes, um, am I, who am I? Uh, doing these uh, four? And uh, how is this attitude being uh, played out um, in, my, uh, in my life? I think that it can sometimes be hard to get a grasp around, okay, what is Jesus asking me uh, to do here as a servant? The greatest, the greatest definition I've ever heard a- of a servant came from Gail Irwin, and when he said a servant is very simply one who makes life better for another person. And so it isn't that complicated. It it is to look in any relationship or context that we find ourselves in, look at the uh, people or person that's in that situation, ask myself, how can I make life better for them uh, in this situation, and then proceed Uh, to do that. So it can be cleaning up, something simple as cleaning up the table uh, or the kitchen after a meal, uh, helping someone carry a, a load or groceries or something, a load in their arms through a door, helping someone with a ride someplace, a medical appointment, whatever it might be in a marriage, asking myself, what in the world could I do? Lord, it's been a long time since i prayed this in my marriage. What could I do to make things uh, a little bit better for uh, my spouse? And, and so it, it goes in, our, in schools and it goes in our neighborhood and, and in our workplace. And whatever we look at and we see that needs to be done, that's the answer. To look and to say, if, um, if the roles were reversed here, uh, what would I want somebody to do for me here, and then to simply do uh, that thing. It isn't, it isn't rocket uh, science at, at, at all. And so this is the, what the call is that he makes here uh, related to that. And that's the, the how of of greatness, and uh, the, uh, comes in the kingdom of God with uh, servanthood, and so uh, taking that particular position. Because Jesus has called us to… Uh, he tells us that we are the kingdom of God, so we are a distinct kingdom among the kingdoms of the earth, the kingdoms of this world that are under, under, uh, under the devil. And and so we are this distinct kingdom. I love an old saying that I, I read many, many years ago, and that is that the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that becomes visible through the obedience of God's people. And I like that because uh, it, it can look like in, in our workplace, it can look like in our homes, it can look like in all the different places that we are, uh, that, 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 you know, there, I'm not being given any kind of an opportunity, you know, to, to manifest the kingdom of God in this environment. Every time we obey Christ in that environment, boom, there's a flash of the kingdom of God in that place. and. And as our schools, as our work environments, as the world around us becomes uh, moves further and further away from the kingdom uh, of God, the more pronounced that boom is and noticed by people it is uh, when it happens. And And people notice it, and it's a powerful, powerful dynamic. And, of course, servanthood is amazing in this way. We've been talking on Sunday morning in Philippians, but... Uh, we see the culture is is on steroids in terms of developing selfishness and selfism and self, self, self. Uh, and don't you ever wash anybody's feet. I mean, it's a polar opposite of what we're seeing here. And, uh, and so there has to be that reminder, I think, that uh, the authority... Uh, that uh, spiritual authority that comes with this kind of servanthood. Uh, Jesus spoke to the disciples, again, in the context of their argument over who was the greatest. And, And he spoke about the governments of the Gentiles. He said, don't be like that. And the governments of the uh, Gentiles and the ways of the Gentiles, it can be a school system, it can be corporate America, it can be political America, wherever there is a kingdom that is dominated uh, by the philosophy of the world, uh, your power is directly proportional to the number of people you have under you. So the higher you get up on that triangle, the more powerful uh, you are. And however many people you have to squash is like bugs on the way up there, then that's just what needs to happen. And this is what is extolled uh, before us so often. Jesus said that's not to be your model because power is not our aim. Authority is our aim. And I can use power from the outside in order to bludgeon someone into submission to my power in these environments and in the environments of the world. But people giving me authority to speak into their life and influence their life, that's something that they give. Power and authority are two entirely different things. And people will never listen to us. They, will, they won't care one bit about uh, our kingdom of God, one single bit about uh, the message that we carry or listen to us, unless they have a sense uh, that we exist for their good, that we are a servant to them, that all we care about is the best for them. And when they see that in our life, and in how we treat them. And sometimes it takes a long time for that light to go on for them, but only when they see us as a servant will they recognize this is someone I will trust to be influential in my life. And it all moves forward on the foundation of servanthood, the kingdom of God uh, does, or at least the most uh, powerfully it does. And then Jesus, in verse 18, he said, as the disciples, including Judas, were present, he said, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom uh, whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, and he quotes the scripture, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it uh, does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who uh, sent me. And so Jesus here now, he speaks of uh, Judas, his betrayer. And uh, and Jesus declared that what he had been teaching the disciples about in terms of service, it didn't apply to one of them. And the one it didn't apply to was Judas. In verse 18, uh, John makes it clear. Jesus does, in quoting it from the Old Testament, makes it clear that Judas's betrayal, among other verses in the Bible, his betrayal was something that was a fulfillment of Scripture. And so often in prophecies in the Bible, they have a near and a far fulfillment. And what Jesus is quoting here is from an event that involved David, uh, King David and his betrayal at the hands of Ahithophel. And uh, and the Holy Spirit uh, also had in mind here, as Jesus quotes it, The the far fulfillment of Judas' betrayal of Jesus. And just as David had a betrayer uh, in a close associate, his friend, his counselor, uh, Ahithophel, the one who strove against God's anointed, David was God's anointed, and then he ended up hanging himself at the end of it, so too Jesus had a betrayer among the twelve, among his disciples who strove against God's anointed from that position, Judas, who would then end his life in the same way that Ahithophel did, by hanging. And Jesus prophesied of the betrayal beforehand, so that uh, when it happened, it wouldn't be a, a stumbling block to the disciples, but that they would recognize it as a further witness to his, his deity and so he reiterated the unity of the Father and, and uh, himself and all of this in verse uh, 20. And then in verse 21, when he had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. Troubled in spirit. That's something. One of the most miserable experiences in life, one of the most troubling experiences in life is betrayal. Betrayal. And you think about what Jesus had sown for three and a half years into this man's life. Think about the privilege that was Judas's. Think about the vulnerability that Jesus exhibited toward Judas by allowing him to be around him 24 7 for three and a half years and to get that close and then in the final hour to betray him it's a terrible terrible experience both in Jesus and when it happens in our lives too and he was troubled and troubled to even have to tell this to the other uh, disciples and to Uh, trouble them. And so he testified and he said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Imagine that bomb going off in the room. It's the night before his crucifixion and Jesus tells them, one of you is going to betray me. And I mean, you just put yourself in the shoes of any one of them and it would be like... What? How in the world could could that be? I mean, it would just really rock your world. It's interesting that nobody—they didn't all go. The Bible doesn't say they all looked over at Judas. It's him, isn't it? They didn't have any idea which of the twelve uh, it, it, it was. It it all, and so Jesus lets them know this. He. He uh, gives them this description uh, of, of, of this betrayal that is going to happen. And then the disciples, they looked at one another. They're perplexed. I mean, they're just at sea here about whom he spoke. How, this can't be possible, Jesus. This, this just, how can this happen? This can't be possible. And, and they're perplexed about who in the world was he talking about? Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So when they sat at that triclinium, that table, uh, as Jesus is sitting there with his left elbow out and his feet down, the food here at the table, the one who leaned on Jesus' bosom would have been the disciple that was seated right here in front of him, who in order to talk to Jesus would have to lean back in this way. And so John is basically describing for us here uh, the position of at least a couple of the disciples around that table as this conversation is going on. And so John here, he never identifies himself by name, but uh, more than once in the gospel, he refers to himself as one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. That's a curious thing to put, isn't it? I remember when I was younger... Uh, a young Christian, and I and I read that about John and and his his, his description of himself uh, in this way as as uh, I, I thought that there's a very very curious thing uh, a way for him to uh, put things and uh, maybe just even a little bit cocky a little too self assured you know and of course John was right and I was wrong again and because it. The older we grow in the Lord, um, the longing that is in our heart for our own lives and for every other Christian to be able to have the confidence in the love of God, to be able to articulate it, to be able to say it uh, without reservation or without qualification that I am one of His disciples and he loves me. And it's this beautiful witness to uh, the security in God's love that John possessed and uh, a beautiful example of what God wants for uh, each of us in our lives. And hopefully we have that this evening. How much the Lord loves us, so much so that we could communicate that to anyone and be on solid ground and uh, uh, a, a wonderful, uh, a holy uh, ground, and then leaning back on uh, well, Simon Peter. He therefore he motioned to John and asked him to ask Jesus who he was talking about. So Peter, it's already been a rough supper for him. So he's over two, and this might be a third strike, and he'll end up in the penitentiary. Uh, so he doesn't want to, he's laying low at this point. <laughs> when, you've been sit, when you've been put down, sit down, and so he does. So he motions to John, John, uh, you're the youngest. John was probably 16 years old or so. He was the, the youngest and, and loved by virtue of being the youngest as well in a, a special way as they, they tend to be. And so then John, he leaned back on Jesus' breast, and he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And he dipped the bread then into into the sauce or whatever was there. And then he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And so he identified him by gesture and not by name. To give someone a sop, to take some uh, food, put it into some kind of, a, of a, a dip or a sauce, and then to give it to someone, that was a gesture of honor. And Jesus, all the way to the end, he knows the betrayal is going to occur, but he is, he is going to make Judas betray him uh, from the high road in terms of Jesus not allowing... Uh, Judas to uh, change who he, uh, who he was, in, uh, even in this, this dynamic situation. And after the piece of uh, bread, Satan then formally entered into Judas, and then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. That would be something to hear, wouldn't it? But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this. They're still lost in terms of uh, tracking on all of this for some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus was telling him, go buy some of these things that we need for the feast or that he he should give something uh, to the poor. And having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately uh, and it was uh, night. And so when he had gone out, Jesus said now to the disciples, now down to uh, the eleven there in the room, he, he said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. Notice he gr- these full-grown men, he calls them little children, the, f- the affection that is there. Uh, I will be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. And so now uh, I say it also Uh, to you. And so his death, he he declared to the disciples, would bring a short separation between him and the disciples uh, as he declared. And I think in order to understand what follows here in verses 34 and 35, it's critical Uh, to notice a couple things that Jesus uh, declared to the disciples in in that verse 33. Little children, I will be with you a little while longer, and then where I'm going, you cannot come. In other words, what Jesus is teaching the disciples here is uh, completely dominated now uh, by the reality of this separation that he's talking about. Jesus knew that when the morning came, an entire series of events would then begin to fall over like dominoes. He would be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he would be tried. He would be crucified. He would be buried. He would rise again on the third day. He would ultimately ascend back um, uh, into heaven and producing what is now almost 2,000 years of physical separation between Jesus and his disciples uh, on the earth. And it's because of this coming separation that we find ourselves in the middle of tonight that Jesus gave, gave his command here concerning love. And how do we uh, know that? We know from the final words of verse 33 there, when Jesus declares, "So now I say to you, and it sets everything up for this, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love uh, one another, so he gives them this this command, new commandment that was uh, to dominate and is to dominate our relationships with one another uh, as Christians during the entirety of this physical separation that, that continues to this day here in, in Jesus being in heaven and as we await his return. Jesus just basically saying, he's saying a lot of things here, but he's saying to the disciples, I'm going to be gone for a while and you're going to need one another like you have never needed one another before. There's not going to be any margins for arguing on the road over who is the greatest, or trying in selfish ambition to get to the highest place, all of these kind of arguments that are going uh, on—you're going to need each other like you've never needed each other before—and so He gives them uh, this uh, commandment that we're to the uh, speaking of the love that we're to have for our fellow Christians. And you notice that Jesus uh, very clearly He made it a commandment. He didn't just command it, but He labeled it a commandment. That must mean that it isn't always easy to love every Christian. I, I've I've heard that. I've never met a Christian that I just didn't fall in love with immediately and was effortless to love. No way. We're all fairly hard to love. You think about the diversity within the body of Christ, the differences of personality, the differences of opinions, and all of these kind of things. And so we are going to rub up against one another, and, it, and this is going to be in the need, in the form that it takes of a commandment for us to say, no, this is a commandment, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what it is that, that I am uh, going to. Uh, to do. So Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, you can love the ones that are easy to love and, you know, the rest, I'm not that hip, that hip to either. And so uh, you, can, you can disregard it. I think it helps me to realize when I, when I think about people and I think about Christians, and some of them can be difficult. Uh, they don't go here. They all go to, to Big Valley. I'm just kidding. Well, I shouldn't joke about that because I used to make that my standard joke when Pastor Rick was pastoring there, so it was very, very safe to do that. So I know they've had a pastoral change there, and, and uh, so I'll, I'll have to find another uh, church to, to mention where people will know that, that, that I'm, I'm kidding. It helps me in terms of love and, and loving Christians to realize that every single Christian in this world that we run into that talks the talk and walks the walk pays a price for that. They pay a price for that in their lives, relationally within their family, uh, it can, uh, in terms of uh, job and the potential for advancement. Some of it is things we'll never see. They pay a price that is internal. And and all of us know the price that we pay and have paid for uh, being a disciple, for simply being a Christian, and to realize that others are paying that price as well, that every one of us as Christians, we are so far away from home right now on this earth. It's a rough place. We go more, more than ever in this country swimming against the stream, and it takes a lot of work to swim against the stream culturally and spiritually in this culture. And when I view every Christian that way, for all of the quirks and all of the things that would divide us, it it gives me a compassion and it gives me uh, a a love for them and uh, and a a compassion for uh, the portion that is theirs uh, in this life as well. And so... Uh, this and the recognition that we really, really do need one another. I, I think that in verse thirty-four here, um, where Jesus says that new commandment I give you that you uh, love one another, God has a. He, I do think he has a sense of humor. I mean, I, Jesus didn't bring, begin any of his sermons with a joke. Sorry, right, I'm going to head into the Sermon on the Mount. I need an icebreaker. So there was a priest and a rabbi and a pastor on a fishing trip. You know, this kind of a thing. I mean, people do that, and I laugh at the jokes uh, m- uh, myself. But he, he didn't do that. But I do, think he has, uh, I do think that he has a sense of humor. And how often God works for the unity of the body of Christ to take that person that might not be my favorite person in the body of Christ, and then somewhere along the way make me need them. Make me need them in some way. And then they come into my life and they do what it is that uh, only they could possibly do in that situation, and then I, I, I realize the foolishness of thinking that I can get along with, uh, and, uh, have the freedom to get a, not get along with any member of the body of Christ, and God keeps that in front. He said so He's done that many, many times to me in my Christian life. You're all staring at me, so yes, I'm a, a, a sinner, and I trust that it's happened in your life as well. And it, and it and it is a, just a. A great, great truth—the commandment—and then God building in a way to to reinforce this commandment in our relationships uh, with uh, one another. And so the world is watching us, of course, as as His disciples, as Jesus declared uh, to them uh, by all, uh, verse thirty-five: "By this all will know that you are My disciples if you have love one for another." So you look at the world. And I don't know if you've noticed in our country, but it seems fairly divided to me. Listen, I'm not a prophet. <laughs> and I'm not the son of a prophet. We're in a culture, and, and it's very much the world, we're in a culture that is absolutely at war with one another. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that... That war isn't warranted in some ways when spiritual and moral positions are at uh, it, it play. Uh, but the body of Christ is to offer to the world something different than that, where people will know as they see the kingdom of God, as they see us love one another, they, they will recognize that that's a place that I can go where I will not only be loved by God, speaking of the kingdom of God, but I will also be loved by his people. I'm just about to break into what the world needs now, is love, sweet love. But Dion Warwick, I can't top her, so I won't do it. But it's the truth. And it's been the truth for 2,000 years, and it's been the truth way before Jesus gave us this commandment. The world is looking for love. They're looking for God's love and then they're looking for a place uh, that is an environment that is loving to come in and and grow in in there in our walk with the Lord. And it's a powerful, powerful witness to the world, this distinction. It provides a motivation for me also in this area of, of love. We all want everyone in this world to be saved. We want them to have the life with God that we have, to wake up in the morning with the same hope that we have, the confidence that we have, uh, to say, good morning, Lord. Here's another day you gave me, and, and uh, thanks for being there uh, with me. And we want that uh, for them. And, and, uh, and so this, this desire for that for them and, and then the importance of them seeing this love so they can see a different kind of, of kingdom. So it speaks to us tonight. There are places in the body of Christ and there are situations where um, we have to make a strong stand against other Christians who are taking unbiblical stands. But that stand can be done in love. And it is, in fact, a, a demonstration of love to resist... That, that kind of thing. But it really reminds us, I think in a convicting way for me certainly, it reminds me of just how much is at stake uh, with, uh, in this issue of love. And Jesus said at the end of verse 34, I don't want to uh, uh, just go on without it. He said, as I have loved you that you also love one another. So there's kind of a word picture for you. And, and so Jesus isn't asking us to do anything for anyone else that he hasn't already done for us. And so we look at a person, we look at a, a person in a situation in life and we ask ourselves, what was Jesus to me and what did he do for me when I was in exactly that kind of a situation? And then to take and do that in that situation toward our brothers and our sisters. And that's the degree. Simon Peter said to him in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Simon Peter's just like uh, everybody that's listening to a sermon or listening to a teaching. Um, he he's, he's stuck on verse 33. You ever, ever you're listening to a sermon and then something happens and God may be just speaks to you right out of that section and all, and then you rejoin the sermon 15 minutes later or four minutes later after you've kind of worked that through with the Lord, and that's just the supernaturalness of the Holy Spirit in in all of this. And so his mind is stuck in verse 33 where Jesus said uh, he's, he's going someplace that they can't go. He said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered and said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now but you shall follow me afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow uh, until you have denied me three times. And so it was going to happen. So this beautiful passage on um, servanthood, here, that Jesus speaks and he models, so important to him, and and it is at the same time not only describes to us the importance of servanthood in in the body of Christ, in in representing the body of Christ, but how dangerous division is and how dangerous selfish ambition is uh, to uh, God's kingdom. Uh, Greatness comes through being a servant. And then this great passage here that we close with on on love. There was a Christian song that uh, was was one of the Maranatha albums years and years and years ago. And uh, I think Ken Gullickson uh, wrote the song. But it's called A Charity Song. And, uh, and and that the chorus in it—it's basically the singing of Psalm uh, or First Corinthians chapter thirteen. And the chorus is, "If I have not charity, if love does not flow from me, I am nothing." Okay, so I'm tracking with them. I'm tracking with them there. And then the final line: "Jesus, reduce me to love." And one of the greatest things—I mean, I got a long way to go on this front, like all of us do, until we're in heaven but that's a prayer that he will answer. And we look at this and we can look at it and say the the gap, not only in terms of obedience to the commandment to love, but the, the gap between me taking it even as remotely seriously as Jesus takes it can be so great. And so it begins then with a prayer of saying, Lord, I see it. I see the wisdom of it, I want to be that, but you're going to have to reduce me to love. And he has many wonderful ways to do that, Uh, some of them having to do with Peter in this passage, Uh, but he will do that, and it's a prayer that he will answer. In this subject of love, one of the things that's been helpful for me through the years is in in my personal Bible that I use for um, my devotions and that, that kind of thing. Um, I, I have a printout, and I've pasted it on the back insert of the back cover of my Bible, and it is First Corinthians chapter 13 in the Amplified Bible. And if you've never read it in the Amplified Bible, you don't have to buy an Amplified Bible. Just Google it, and you'll find the chapter that is on there. Such a beautiful expression uh, of, uh, of that love. If you sit here uh, th- this evening, and you're not yet a Christian, um, look at what you're missing. I mean, and, and not only... I have to be careful because, like for me, when I, when I became a Christian, um, my biggest concern was not to escape hell. That was not a concern of, of mine at all. I'm glad. My biggest concern was to be saved from myself and saved from emptiness and to be saved from hopelessness. And so when I think about a gospel presentation, I'm always thinking, look what you're missing. And sometimes I can miss the heavier side to all of this, that we don't become Christians supremely because of what we're missing here, but because there is a judgment that is upon our sin, and righteously so. And so there needs to be a repentance of my sin putting my trust in Jesus Christ for that forgiveness and then coming into this kind of life that Christ has for us. And if you've never done that, we'll be up in front after the service and we'd love to make today your day of salvation. If you need prayer for anything this evening, we'd love to pray uh, with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer.